Hello, everybody, and welcome to Best Seat on the Couch, the podcast that's slowly, oh so slowly, turning into a Miyazaki appreciation podcast. My name is Alex. I'm Iris. I'm Marcus. And I'm Michael. And today, we are talking about the Studio Ghibli movie, Princess Mononoke. The movie debuted in 1997 and was written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. The story follows Prince Ashitaka after a corrupted boar god attacks his village and places a curse on him. To remove the curse, Ashitaka journeys west to the same lands the boar came from to seek out the deer god who lives in the western forest. On his journey, he comes across the Ironworks, a settlement manufacturing firearms that is currently defending the town from Princess Mononoke, a young woman who has been raised by Moro, the wolf god. Ashitaka realizes that Mononoke is the best chance he has to encounter the deer god and resolves to befriend her, despite her hatred for humankind. And, as always, there will be spoilers. Now, as with every Studio Ghibli movie and every old movie, we do have to go over the first times that each of us have uh, experienced and watched this movie. Now, like... With all spirited, not spirited away movies, all Ghibli movies for me, the way that I experienced them was watching them late at night on the old Cartoon Network Toonami sort of marathons. They'd play a bunch of the Studio Ghibli movies all in a row. Um, I'd watch them every chance I could get. And I remember catching Princess Mononoke on one of these and just being sort of blown away by... One, how immersive the world was, and two, how bloody it was. It was like probably one of the most, uh, most if not more violent shows that I watched as a kid. And seeing that this came from the same studio as My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away, it kind of shocked me as a kid how, not different, but how, I guess the word is different, how different it was from these other films. Uh, but what about you guys? What was your first experience with the show? And what did you think of it as a kid? Um, yeah, so I watched this at the same time, around the same time as watching all the other Ghibli films. Uh, I think I mentioned in the Spirit Away episode that we had this like club at, uh, at middle school where we watched a bunch of Hayao Miyazaki films. And yeah, you're right. Like I think, if I recall... This is either the only one or one of the only one uh, of Hayao Miyazaki's works that is rated PG-13. It's kind of mm-hmm. like a Revenge of the Sith, if you, if you so <laughs> choose to use that analogy. Um, but you can immediately tell as well. Like, I think that in the first, I want to say, 15 minutes, right, when Ashitaka is going to that village, like, that guy's head just flies straight off. Yeah. And his yeah. arms just fly yeah, straight some, off. There's some... I know there's, like, magic and stuff going on, but there is some questionable physics in that scene. Yeah, Jesus. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it did shock me a little bit, but uh, otherwise, it was uh, it was a great movie, for me, at least. Uh, I actually haven't seen it since then. It's one of the movies that I haven't... I've kind of left on the back burner for some reason. But, uh, yeah, I think, in, I think in general, I overall uh, enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, for me, actually... 
surprise, surprise, I do actually remember watching this movie for the oh first time. Oh my god, the first time. <laughs> I know, of it's, all. It's, it's, it's a miracle. Um, and I don't remember much about, like, the actual, like, events of the day, just, like, sort of my impressions on watching it for the first time. And much like you, Alex, I was sort of, you know, I was, like, what, 12 or something? I was a little taken aback at, like, the violence and just how, like, casual it is, too. And, you know, the gore, there's blood everywhere in this, in this movie. Uh, I remember being taken aback by just sort of the depth of the beauty of the world. I think this, as far as like the breadth of the Studio Ghibli uh, works go, this movie really hits the highs and the lows, like the highs of just the beauty of the world and the lows of just like the gore and the violence and just like the, the, the visual discomfort that it all evokes. Like it's, it's got a really impressive range, this movie. Um, but yeah, saw it in middle school. I think a lot of the sort of the the anti-war, pacifist, anti-industrialism messages really flew over my head at that age. But in subsequent rewatches, I think uh, as I've come to appreciate really what the movie's trying to say more, it's grown a lot on me. And I don't know if I would personally say this is my like number one favorite Studio Ghibli film, but it's in the top like two or three for sure. All right, well, on the other side of the couch, uh, <laughs> as of, let's say, three and a half hours ago, I completed my first watch ever of hey. Princess Mononoke. Wow. Welcome to the fold, Marcus. Yes, another... So we've got a, like a real spread here of, you know, like, saw it long ago, saw it recently, both. I, as I have to say, another fine addition to my collection. <laughs> um <laughs> um but i i think iris's comment about the the breadth of the beauty really struck me compared to nausicaa which we had discussed a couple of weeks ago i thought this movie really went a lot further in establishing the beauty and the the colors of the world um i think it was much more vibrant and i think it was there was as iris mentioned a, a bigger kind of distance between the highest highs and the lowest lows when they were portraying different scenes in different locations. Um, I also thought the music was fantastic. Like, uh, I, I'm sure some of the, uh, some of the Miyazaki films are known very well for their scores, but this one especially seemed to be very good. Um, so I'm hoping there's more like them because this was, there were, there are a couple of uh, tracks that really slapped as the kids do say. <laughs> I put a put a pin in in that thought process also because later I do want to talk more about like the direct comparison that can be drawn between Princess Mononoke and Nausicaa of Valley of the Wind. I think there's a lot of discussion to be had there about their similarities, their differences. Mm-hmm. We will we will definitely talk on that point. Uh, but I do want to dive into some of the more uh, concrete things about this movie, namely the characters and some of the scenes that uh, Hayao Miyazaki gives to us. Uh, And I I wanted to go over each of your favorite characters and or favorite scenes. And I'll start with mine uh, first. So my favorite character in this movie has to be Lady Uboshi. Okay, you just stole that one from me too. (laughs) I mean that's 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 how it goes on the show, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I we ask for favorites, and then everyone always has their favorites taken away. <laughs> but uh, Lady Eboshi, I just love her character, and I love all of the characters in the Ironworks. And I'll dive a little bit more into that later. But first, let's just focus on Lady Eboshi because her whole deal 
for me is like she is pure dilute her character is diluted strength it's like pure strength that's all she cares about that's all her goals include and that goal of hers has brought her into conflict with the uh nature spirits and the forest gods and all of her followers in the ironworks like the uh the women the men uh the craftspeople they all respect lady eboshi's strength and you can see that in the way they all interact with one another in that whole uh noisy bustling community and i just love that sort of character building we see not just through uh telling us about how powerful she is and how and what her ideals are but showing it through like the interactions of the people and through lady eboshi's interactions with them herself but yeah i just think she's one of the most memorable and amazing characters that uh, Hayao Miyazaki has come up with. Another another thing about Iboshi, I thought, um, was that I think, obviously this is a testament to Miyazaki's tendencies to write really strong and really good female characters, but uh, Iboshi's strength doesn't come at the expense of her underlings, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, you see that a lot. You see that parroted a lot in Western movies where where the, the female like the female commander or whatever has essentially just been tougher than everyone else and is like basically just like essentially a very machismo person who just happens to be female. Um, but you know it's it, I, I found it very interesting how everybody all especially the woman, everybody who's under her really like enjoys her rule, you know they enjoy life under her, which you know aside from the fact that she's essentially, fighting a one-woman war against nature, like, she's a great kind of leader for that town and a great leader for the for those people. So mm-hmm. to see her lose um, at, the, at the climax and then basically come out and say, well, we'll just have to try again and do a little bit better next time um, is, is an interesting way to kind of establish that she still has the, the better interests of her people at heart at first before trying to kill deer-faced man. Yeah, and just to add, bookend that, I, I really love how, yeah, like you said, kind she is to her her people. Uh, like, the she, they mentioned, like, all the women were former slaves that she bought, and the, I mean, she takes care of, like, lepers and things like that. It's crazy. Right, I mean, and that's exactly it. Like, she's a strong female character. I know there's like implied air quotes around that phrase, but she doesn't have to be strong by being more of a man than the men. Right. You know, and it's, I think, I think it is, it adds nuance, right? Because in, in this movie, there's so much of the structure of it is, you know, the sides, whose side are you on? Whose side is Ashitaka on? It's the humans in Irontown versus the samurai versus the denizens of the forest, the gods and the wolves and the boars. Right. And, I think it adds some nuance to having this be more than just a simple good versus evil story that, you know, she, she takes care of her people, you know, she, she bought out all, you know, the, the like indentured servitudes of these women working in brothels and, you know, gave them agency and treats them well. Like they, they love her because she is good to them. I think, yeah, it's a, it's a great answer. It's a great answer for the question. Yeah, absolutely. I actually completely agree. That was uh, Lady Boshe was also my answer. And I think that, for me at least, the reason why I find her so enjoyable is because of the way that she 
presents herself. As Iris said, like she cares about her people, but also like she, at least to me, she didn't seem like she had an inherent malice to in her. Right. Like as opposed to someone like, like Jigo, right. Who, you know, obviously is doing this for the emperor, but you can tell that he's like desperate almost, or like he is, he is, um, uh, like he, he is unrelenting. Whereas I think Lady of Boshi, her motivation is very relatable, I guess. Like, at least to me, the way it sounds like is that like the, the reason that she's cutting down the forest is so that she can, you know, grow iron town for her people. Um, and like, you know, the reason that she is, uh, trying to slay the, the, the forest spirit one of the reasons that she said that she mentions is the fact that it will turn princess Mononoke human again, that like she believes in the humanity of this wolf girl. Right. Um, and I just, I just thought that was very, uh, not necessarily inspiring maybe, but interesting, you know, it's about as relatable as someone who says that they want to take over the world can be. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I do think that, uh, Moro was actually one of my favorite characters. Um, I'm I'm highlighting specifically that scene where um, I guess it's like early in the morning or something like two in the morning where uh, Ashtaka comes out to the to the ledge and then they have a chat basically Moro on top of the stone and basically Moro is trying to figure out what Ashtaka's um, intentions with uh, Princess Mononoke or San or whatever are and I thought that 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 conversation that they had was very touching I thought it was very it was very good for both characters because I think it truly pushed um, Ashtaka towards the side of the, you know, the spores. Obviously he was with the spirits pretty much the entire time, but he wanted to help the people too. But I think with, with Iris mentioning that the sides thing was so potent, such a, such a hammered away idea like that really pushed him to the side of the forest spirits and San and Mononoke out I, I want to just call her San, but I want to also call her Princess Mononoke because <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, the name well, of the Well, movie. so here's, here's, here's the thing, actually, though, because the word Mononoke is not like a, it's not a name, right? It, it, it's a title. It's, it roughly translates to, you know, Princess of the Forest Spirits, yeah. Princess of the Vengeful Spirits, right? Because yeah. the word Mononoke is actually like a thing separate from this movie. So her name is San. We should call her San. Uh yeah, that's 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 all I have to say on that bit. <laughs> okay, Iris, I guess I will be calling her son from now on. Um, but I thought it was also a, an interesting conversation that kind of established Moro's uh, own intentions as well. He, you know, she very clearly loves San a lot as a daughter, um, and also very clearly hates humans. But she can tell that Ashtaka has, you know, a lot of love and care for her daughter. Um, which I think eventually kind of changes the the way she acts when uh, I can't remember the name of the really old boar god comes back uh, and they have that kind of... Otoko? Yeah, Otoko. Okoto. Yeah. When they have that kind of last moment before both Moro and Otoko die at the hands of the forest spirit. But I've, I really liked I really liked all the wolves and I to be honest, I really liked all of the forest characters. I think, you know, the way that they kind of spoke um, as animals was interesting to see. Um, I guess just because I haven't really seen something like that before, you know, Miyazaki movie or not. 
Did you listen to the sub or the dub? I'm just curious. I watched the sub, so okay. I do know that because just we to, had, just a yeah. very small point in the dub. The uh, I I would say that this is probably one of the not as good dubs in terms <laughs> of the Miyazaki films. I only watch, I only say that now, um, and it's, you know most of it's fine. Did you know that uh, what's his face Jigo uh, Jigo is played by Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, sorry back on topic. The the reason I mentioned it is because in in the dub the apes are like. He is human. We must kill human. And I'm like, okay, okay, you can, you can, you know, chill on that a little bit. Anyway, yeah. So I have a take here. I don't think that this movie is at its core a character-driven film. I think at its core, this is sort of a, a, a plot and like action-driven film. Not that it is an action film, air quotes, but that what moves the story forward is not so much like the, the, the characters sort of making changes in and of themselves. It is this current of events, one thing causing another to happen, causing another to happen back and forth, right? This escalation of violence and conflict. I think in a large way, many of the characters, many of the important characters that we see don't really have all that significant like changes between when we meet them and the end of the movie. I think a lot of them are very, not stereotypes per se, but like they are what they are and they're very strong characters and they're very set in their characterization. And I don't think we see a lot of like subtle changes over the course of the movie. Take uh, Lady... What's her name? Eboshi. Uh, Lady Eboshi, for example, right? You had all these things to say about her. She's strong. She's independent. She's fierce. She's unyielding. She's courageous. She's practical. You know, there's all these, like, adjectives that I could, you know, throw on the table that all, you know, describe her and build a really, you know, compelling and three-dimensional character. But that character doesn't really change a lot towards the end of the movie. She's very stuck in her ways. She's very much, you know, I'm going to protect Iron Town and, you know, damn the samurai, damn the forest gods, you know, damn everything that, you know, isn't me and carving out my little chunk of the world. And right up until the very end, when she like loses an arm, spoilers, loses an arm, be, you know, and then she's like, oh man, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And then the movie's over, <laughs> right? I think a lot of these characters are just sort of like, they are what they are. And that's fine. It's not a bad thing. But it's a different sort of framing of the story. It's a different way to push the action forward. I see a lot of raised fingers, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna shut up and let you guys react to that. Oh no no no. I, I definitely agree with you, Iris. I, I don't think that a lot of these characters have a sort of arc that they follow. Uh, I think this movie is more of like each character has, like you said, their own standpoints. They are uh, they have their own like wills and motivations, and it's in this movie that we see these like clash of wills um, between like I mean the forces of nature and the forces of humankind, and I think that conflict right there is like the driving force of this whole movie. And I just want to say also I think the mo- person who changes the most in this movie is San, and that is yes. barely if. Mm -hmm. that's exactly what i was gonna say like sod is the only one who i think has like an appreciable change i think a lot of the sort of 
you know, these characters being sort of these ironclad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that actually Iron. was not intentional. But like being these ironclad, you know, personalities, right? I think a lot of that comes back down to the ways in which this movie is a very deeply symbolic story. You know, everything that's happening is, you know, representation, symbolism. These characters represent ideas beyond themselves, you know, and the ideas don't change. So the characters can't. I mean, even Ashitaka, right, who's supposed to be sort of this middle ground, you know, that humans can't keep desecrating the forest and killing the spirits and the spirits can't just slaughter all the humans. You have to live, you know, trying to be this intermediary neutral peacekeeper. Even he is sort of the representation of this ideal, you know, of pacifism and coexistence. Uh, It's a different sort of level of story, but I think it really works well. And I think it'd be hard to say all the things that this movie has to say without leaning so heavily into the symbolism of each of these characters and each of these two sides. I'll add, I'll add one more thing. I think that, I think overall, like when, when we get to the point where we figure out that the boars are going to do an all out attack against the humans, like, we kind of already know at that point how that's going to go. Both sides are going to suffer heavy casualties. The force is going to lose a lot of its, you know, uh, ethereal strength or whatever. And the, the, the forest spirit will probably die. Like that's, I think one of the, one of the things that makes this movie very different, uh, which is along the way that Iris described it, is that the, there are really, there, there's not a lot of change that happens in the way that the plot progresses. It just kind of, it gets to where it's supposed to go because it's been hinted that it's going to go exactly there like an hour beforehand, I think. Um, it's rigid in that way. I don't think the characters suffer for it. And I think that... Um, I think even even Ashitaka has a, a fair bit of growth as a character in, re- in relation to how he foils against San because uh, without like San having that change... Ashitaka can't really, you know, come to that point where they both have to hold up the the deer or the, the spirit's head and restore balance to the nature or whatever. I have a very quick hot take. Oh yeah. I honestly I honestly don't like Ashitaka as a character. <laughs> oh I'm glad somebody said it. No, I don't so, like that bad take. Yeah, well, okay, let me I, 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 I Okay, go, 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 because I brought up the whole sort of, I don't think this is a character-driven plot idea, kind of specifically as a preemptive, like, pushback against what I think you're about to say. It's not about the fact that he doesn't change, at least for me. Like, I accept that. That's fine with me. I think that the reason, and obviously, like, you know, I'm picking at straws here. It's not like I, it's not like I hate him. Like, on the levels of the characters on the show, he's just my least favorite. I just said show, a movie. But, um... I think the reason that he's my least favorite is because it's not, again, it's not that there isn't any change. It's that he's not subtle about anything. And to be fair, none of the other characters are that subtle, but at least those other characters are interesting enough to grab me. And they're not the protagonist of the movie. Like when I, you know, I actually, okay. I will say I enjoy the first half of this movie a lot more than the second half because Ashitaka is, you know, journeying through new lands and visiting uh, new people and learning new things. And I enjoy that kind of stuff. Like, especially, you know, when he 
goes to the goes to the furnaces with the with the girls and like starts like pumping the pumping the the the, the furnaces with them like that was a that was a lot of fun and then i think that like he kind of got stuck and again i'm not this is not about growth as a character but basically he was shouting at both sides for the rest of the half of the movie no one listened and then he basically was like okay everyone just it's not even that everyone gave up either because to me at least no one actually submitted to his will if this is like a battle of wills no one actually lost it's just that Jigo was a little bit dumb and that's how the movie resolves that being said it's not i'm not saying that this is so much of a detriment but to me at least it kind of makes me feel like ashitaka didn't really do anything and also didn't change right like as a character you either have to change or you have to do something and i feel like he didn't even do anything <laughs> Well, I mean, what I'll say to that is, I agree with you in in when you say that the first half is more enjoyable than the second. I think when we when we are first following Ashitaka on his journey through the countryside and his like struggle with handling his arm and like that's good kind of progression. That's a good way to kind of set in motion how you know Ashitaka is slowly losing time in trying to figure out his predicament. And I think when he eventually does get shot. Uh, the first time he's in Iron Town, like that is a great kind of first high point or like first like big point in the movie where he's brought back to life. I think after that point, the movie slows down quite a bit, and I don't think it's Ashitaka's fault. I think it's the movie's fault because I think when they when they go through and they decide to say, "Oh, the boars are about to do a, a whole you know odd attack on the humans," it is literally waiting up until that battle. That fills that next 45 minutes. Yeah, that's really much. true, actually. Like, it, nothing more happened. And I, I agree. Like, Ashtaka is basically, like, the microphone on both sides being like, hey, don't do that. Hey, other side, <laughs> don't do that. Like, that's obviously not great character development. But, like, as the neutral kind of character that Iris hinted at, what else is he supposed to do? Like, yeah. with the way that the movie is written, like, there is no other, like, real way he can grow unless they decide to kind of hammer more towards the kind of i don't want to call it a ship but the ashtaka san kind of like relationship <laughs> i think if they decided to go a little harder on that then that you could you know build something off that but i don't think that's what miyazaki wanted i think you know the 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 battle against you know nature versus humans was obviously the forefront of this movie and i think it does kind of slow down quite a bit like it loses a lot of its steam when we're just basically waiting for that battle to happen Here's what I'm going to say. Here's my sort of one sentence take on your 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 thought, Michael. This movie is not a hero's journey. This movie is not the story of Ashitaka, you know, being called to action by a dread curse that he's got to lift and he journeys across the land and has to save himself and in the process, you know, ends up saving the lives of a bunch of humans and bringing, you know, all the spirits and bringing peace to the land and finding, you know, romance with this girl. It's not that story. And I think because of what this movie is trying the story that this movie is trying to tell right it's these conflicting ideas industrialism versus naturalism there's the the conflict there's this intense sort of self-righteous pacifism going on 
Ashitaka, I think part of it is, you know, as Marcus said, like in that position, you know, representing what he represents, right? This heroic self-sacrifice and noble courage and everything. What else is he supposed to do? I think on, on the one hand, I think my other sort of thought is that these are all like, I think all of your takes are, are valid. I think they're fair criticisms of the movie, but I think on some level, the criticisms of the movie about a thing it's not trying to do. It's not trying to tell us, you know, the story of how Ashitaka saved the land. It's not trying to tell us the story of how the forest's problems were solved and everyone learned to live in peace. I think in many ways, you know, the the, the resolution of this movie, which is, you know, kind of it resolves in, hey, Ashitaka's going to stay with Iron Town and San's going to stay with the forest and they're going to each sort of like guide them to rebuild and regrow in harmony it's not a full solution. It's not a complete solution. But I think that's intentional. I don't think that this movie is trying to say, this is how we solve everything. This is how we solve these conflicting ideals. This is how we solve the problem of humans versus nature. And I think for the story it's trying to tell, for the like, the clash between these symbolic, you know, like the grand symbolic constructs, I think that is the focus. And I think it's important to like, just keep in mind that your criticism while valid and do you do totally affect the experience of the movie. And I absolutely agree with you. You know, I think it, I think like, I love like character arcs. I love kind of people showing development, you know, y'all who've been listening to this podcast know this about me, but at the same time, I think it's important to say like, Hey, that's all important, but this is also sort of like where this story was trying to focus its efforts. I, I do agree with you. And, again, it's not the fact that Ashitaka didn't have development. It's the fact that when you say that's not what the movie is about, I like it almost is like the movie is disagreeing with you. At least in my point of view. Because of the fact of the structure of this movie, that one, it is from the, from the point of view of Ashitaka for the most part, right? There are, you know, in the second half, there are more there's more screen time with son by herself and her doing her stuff but it prepared my expectations for it to be a story about how ashitaka deals with this new situation right and if what you're saying is true then like it almost feels like there's this like internal conflict with what the movie is saying and what the movie's trying to do and to a certain extent, I think that's what I'm trying to get at when I say that, like, I don't think that Ashitaka is dealt with as as well as he could have been. And again, it's not even talking about development. I'm talking about, like, actual things that he does. Like, I don't think that he does a lot in general. I mean, if we're talking about characters not doing a lot, I they did sound dirty in this movie. I mean, that's true. I think. Mm. That's a different point entirely. I just want to get that out yeah. there. I like she had the cool scene where she's trying, she's invading Iron Town and trying to kill Lady Aboshi, and then she gets rescued, and then the rest of the movie she kind of just like does nothing, <laughs> gets knocked out by a slingshot, and fucks everything up. <laughs> it feels bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I can see that, and I do think the movie. We've we've been over this. We've we're kind of beating a dead horse at this point, but right. uh, yeah, this movie is is like purely focused, I think, on the message it gives, and maybe perhaps 
that message uh, because of Ashitaka's relative like lack of influence on this plot. Maybe by the end of this movie is saying uh, that posing a question of whether or not we all need to work in harmony. It can't just be the effect of just one man to reverse all this nature damage that people have done. So perhaps that's what the movie's going for. Yeah, and I think my 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 intention in, you know, like bringing up the idea of like focusing on what the movie is trying to do and isn't trying to do is not to deflect from what I think are very valid criticisms of how the plot is structured, but you know, just to temper them perhaps. You know, that the the kind of the structuring of the plot and the development of the characters does suffer, but it suffers for a reason, right? There are trade-offs in storytelling. You can't do everything all the time, always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, let's shift gears to uh, move from the characters and talk a little bit more about the world of uh, Princess Mononoke. Because I think the world building in this movie, while it's not the most uh, sort of flourished or jam-packed of any uh, Studio Ghibli film, I do think it's the most uh, well-done world building. Uh, It's definitely up there because... For me, a world building, a good world building, makes it so that the viewers or the people who are experiencing the story are given hints at the world outside of the events that are happening in front of them right now. Case in point, the whole reason why they wanted to get the dear god's head was because of the emperor of Japan wanting it for immortality, an emperor we don't even see in the first place. And that's sort of hinting at, uh, like, the societies in the forest, like the monkey tribe, the boar tribe, the wolf tribe. I assume there are other tribes in that. All those, like, implications really uh, help flesh out the world for me and, like, give hints at this larger kind of cosmic ecosystem that this world is existing in but what did you guys think about the world building of like the ironworks the forest spirits uh feudal japan things like that well it's definitely it's definitely a lot less i'll say fantastic air quotes than other studio ghibli films i mean spirited away for example or howl's moving castle something like that it's not like we see anyone performing magic or you know being you know transformed into animals or something i'm casting about here but i mean there is definitely you know mysticism and and a a spiritual nature uh to this world but it's you know it's it's less like strictly fantasy i mean the the creatures that they refer to as like gods are honestly i mean in many ways just kind of big old intelligent talking animals uh but it really, I think, rather than focusing on, like, the fantasy of it all, focuses a lot on, like, as you say, like, the nature, the naturalism, the natural world, right? We get so much focus into the forest and the little bits of life. I mean, something that stuck out to me in my most recent watching was just how many times that there's a shot and, like, a, a little, like, dragonfly or a bug flies, you know, right past one of our characters as like a symbol of, you know, life is happening and is vibrant and is all, you know, around these characters at all times. Uh, It really, I think, dives into trying to evoke that sort of like real magic, if you will. Yeah, and I think the, you know, pitting the two, you know, the very two separate, you know, human 
human group versus the spirit group and the various ways that you know like the boar tribe tries to justify interacting with the humans versus the way the wolf tribe has traditionally been interacting with the humans versus how other humans are trying to interact with humans like there are a lot of different pieces in this on this chessboard and the way that they each interact with each other is fleshed out very well i think i think that's a that's another kind of big hallmark of um of world building to you know have these established players in the game you know come at each other and what the ramifications of their you know contact with each other has on the world around them and i think this movie is kind of a poster child to that exact kind of concept um and i'm going to go back to sound design because i think uh you know all of the nature scenes especially the one with the lake uh, deep in the center of the forest uh you know, there's always there. There is just so so much abundant life and so much color and so much like it's a mystical kind of energy to it, um, which I think is just it was beautiful. I think it, it was really just truly gorgeous. So I really did enjoy that part of it specifically as well. And on the other side, I actually really enjoy the world building aspects of Iron Town. Um, I, I I don't know where I picked this up. I think it was some YouTuber, someone, but. There's this like kind of meme question that you always ask, which is like, when you make a town, how do they eat, right? Like, where is the food coming from? And that tells you a lot about kind of the, the the realism of it, and also how people can relate to or 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 make sense of the sort of verisimilitude of the situation. Um, and for me, the I really enjoyed the fact that you know the first time we meet. We meet Lady Eboshi and their caravan is they're literally just transporting rice to Irontown because they don't have any farms. Literally, all they do is, uh, you know, uh, produce iron. And so they need a, a, a way of getting food in there. And that introduces the conflict between them and the worlds. And it's exactly like that entirely makes sense why they're like continuing to clear out the forests because like they need more land in order to actually like survive basically right and have the have the mountain pass come through and and you know it's it's iron town on this little island with all these like spikes uh leading outwards to protect against wolves like you know climbing the things and obviously like you know the wolves eventually figured out how to get around that in the first scenes where uh son is uh invading the town but it like there are so many details in the town that are just like they feel real like if they're defending against the forest itself and, a, and against San and these very quick wolves, so like that is how the town would be, would be built and would eventually, you know, uh, be constructed as right. Cause obviously like one, one of the things that I also really like about world building is that like, you can't just think about like, okay, I'm going to make a town, put all the stuff a town needs right there. It's like, towns formed very naturally in real life and so you have to think about like why is there a town there what are the things that they need to deal with and how do they deal with that and how does that reflect itself in the town structure in its people in its defenses etc and so i just really i really enjoy iron town to that to that aspect it's like in other words you feel like you can actually visually see the history of the place you know you can see how logically things would have come to be as they are over time not just sort of hey let's construct this sort of ideal of a little mining settlement in medieval era japan yeah no i think that's very fair a lot of thought 
went into a lot of little details in this movie. And I mean, as far as like the world building aspect of it, you know, Michael just said about as much or more as I could. But I mean, even the even the little stuff, I mean, on this watch through, like, there were so many like tiny little details I was noticing in just about every single shot. It was things like the bugs that I mentioned earlier, which are like so so brief and yet have this symbolic meaning. It's things, you know, like if you look in the background of just about any scene in Irontown, you see, you know, people milling about, like having their little lives. There was a, like just an incredible amount of attention to detail. Uh, like the one thing that that stuck out to me is like they did not need to animate this. There was no purpose, but it makes the world feel more fleshed out. Is at one point there's a shot of uh, Ashitaka walking through Iron Town. There's two people in the foreground, kind of taking her turns hammering on a big spike, and the person holding the spike. If you like Wait, ignore you, the actual action and watch this person holding the spike, I, I was going when, to point out that exact same scene because she flinches. You noticed it. <laughs> she flinches. She flinches. She, flinches. Yeah. she flinches back. She's freaking out because like, she thinks she's. I was blown away like, by that. I was like, wow. And it's like, this tiny little corner of one like three second shot. It's things like there are little details like that everywhere. Things like, you know, when people are fleeing from Iron Town at the very end, there's some people like running out there and nothing more than their underwear because they were like, you know, <laughs> in the bathroom or, t- or asleep, you know. Uh, it's just everywhere you look, there's so much like love crafted into every single shot, so much focus and finely you know, pointed focus, too. It's incredible. It's incredible to watch. It makes the world feel just so vibrant. And one more small thing that I'll add on to, how, you know, Michael's kind of uh, adoration of Iron Town, which I also kind of agree with. I think that having a society that integrates both women and men into what is traditionally kind of like the hard kind of ma- manual labor is something that you don't see too often. Um, but I think that the way that they integrated women into that, you know, where they're not just kind of just being like, Oh, the men go out and work, so the women stay home and cook, you know? Like, they're they're working, too. And I think that the way that they fleshed that out was also really cool and something that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. Well, it's very much tied into Lady Oboshi's, like, whole characterization, right? The fact that she was the one who went in and, like, essentially rescued all these women from, you know, a really shitty life being forked to work in brothels. And, like, there's this whole, like, kind of, like, liberation kind of theming going on there which you know can totally be dissected but like it's it's a it's a unique thing and i think it it really lends itself to as i was saying before like the nuance of iron town and its existence in this world Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and i i think this world feels lived in for lack of a better term it feels like people i like that yeah they they exist they go about their lives in this world just like anybody else would and i really like it when the natural world and the human world quote unquote come and interact with one another and how how big of a divide there is between the two because for example when ashitaka is rescuing those two men and they're walking through the forest and the kodama appear uh the the men like think that they are evil spirits things like that like uh he's very scared of them he's never seen them before uh and it's this interaction between the humans and the natural world that I do want to talk about because we've seen this sort of question be brought up in Hayao Miyazaki's other film, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. And I wanted to compare these two films uh, and their messaging between the sort of relation that humans and nature have with one another because 
uh, I think that at least in Princess Mononoke, we see both sides of both the human and the nature sort of the reasons why they want to do what they want to do uh, in a lot more focus than we do in Nausicaa. Uh, And I'll elaborate a little bit more on that. But yeah, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, when I was watching this through most recently, because it's, I think Nausicaa was like four or five episodes ago in that ballpark uh, that we talked about on this show. Mm -hmm. And the entire time I was watching Princess Mononoke most recently, I was just thinking, wait, this is similar to Nausicaa. This is similar to Nausicaa. This is similar to Nausicaa. Like, there's a lot of very similar, like, plot elements. I mean, of course, at the very, like, the surface level, it's this sort of, like, nature versus humanity, industrialism destroying the natural world and the natural world fighting back. You know, but like even in the like smaller details, there's a lot of overlap. You know, this this kind of halfway through the movie, the the hero finds you know the secret oasis hidden in the center of the dangerous part of the natural world, and it's healing. And they see the beauty of the natural world. The whole like there's plenty of scenes where the rushing of the boars is like eerily reminiscent of the Omu in Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind. Uh, you know, this whole like. Even, like, our main characters, you know, Nausicaa and Ashitaka, you know, the the prince or princess of this, you know, village way off that no one, you know, knows about that lives harmoniously with the natural world and, you know, knows how to respect it. But then something happens and the conflict from outside comes in and our brave hero is forced to venture off to, you know, fix this conflict between humans and nature. There's There's a lot of thematic overlap. I do think... The big differences come in what we've been talking about in, in sort of this approach to symbolism, right? I think Nausicaa is a much less kind of overtly symbolic movie. I think the characters do drive the plot forward, like, for their own kind of character arc reasons rather than just, like, this is the conflict that has been set up and we're playing it out to its natural resolution. I, th- I think the kind of these these themes of, you know, like, man versus nature, industrialism, right, the humanity's need to grow versus nature's need to be preserved. And also kind of simultaneously this like violence versus pacifism, like these two sort of thematic contrasts. I think that that's less directly symbolic in Nausicaa, but a lot of it is really like shockingly similar in just how these stories are framed. And part of me is even wondering, and I have to do some research. Part of me is even wondering if like Princess Mononoke were not, an attempt to tell the same story again, but really hammer home the message on the part of Studio Ghibli. So I will I will touch on that. I don't think the two movies are actually that similar plot wise. I think, as you you know mentioned very extensively, the themes of the movie and you know the imagery and the way that you know in industrial versus nature that's all very similar. I I honestly feel like Nausicaa fits more with what you had described earlier, Iris, when you said that there was like a movie about a hero figure coming to kind of save the day. You know, Nausicaa very much plays that figure in Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Like, she literally is prophesied, like, prophesied, prophesies, uh, prophesitized. Prophesied, I think. Prophesied. Prophesied. Um, she's literally, like, destined to do that. Like, so when she does it, it's like, oh, yeah, she did it. Like, wow, she saved everybody and she, like, saved the world. Yeah. Obviously, you know, Ashtaka is not that character, as we discussed earlier. Like, he very much almost takes a back seat in the, in the final minutes of the movie because, you know, it's literally the forces coming together as the kind of, kind of final climax. Not necessarily him doing anything besides holding up the, 
the uh, the spirit's head. So, like, I think that, well, I'll put it this way. My takeaway of how um, Mononoke ends is that when when you have these two kind of prime evil forces, you, you have, you know, the industrialization of man versus the spirit of nature. Like, the resulting clash is, and, and the two sides that represent them, you know, it's it's a very much a movie about hatred and how these two sides cannot tolerate each other. And when that happens, you know, a lot of destruction happens. But I think the, the actual kind of point is that over time, compromise can be achieved. Over time, slow baby steps between both sides where, you know, hate is kind of put aside and people decide to kind of maybe consider that their actions were a little dickish you know, then they kind of come together and build something better. I don't necessarily think that's the same with Nausicaa. I think Nausicaa is very much kind of, you know, hammers home the point at the end where, like, hey, you have this prophesized, you know, individual who, like, saves the world and suddenly nature is on top again. I don't think that, like, obviously, I feel like Nausicaa hammered home way more that nature is the best. Whereas in this movie, I think it's a little less clear. I am honestly really surprised. And I honestly, like, I, I think that's 100% not the case. I think Nausicaa very explicitly had many themes of sort of pacifism and how war and violence and hatred and aggression are, you know, destructive and cause problems beyond themselves. I mean, the whole world is, you know, this post-apocalyptic, you know, wasteland because, you know, humanity had destroyed it. I mean, essentially, you know, a nuclear apocalypse had destroyed it in wars, right? The, like, so many of the the awful things that happen happen because there are these two warring nations that are inciting, you know, causing all this damage to the wild, you know, inciting the bugs against the other nations in an attempt to get revenge, right? And this, this whole thing of their fighting is essentially about to kill everyone, before Nausicaa comes in, turns back the bugs, like, stops the, 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 the aggression and the hatred. I just think that, like, like, I think it's a very explicit message of Nausicaa with the Valley of the Wind. I just think in Princess Mononoke, the symbolism is sort of grander and more in your face. But that definitely seems to be like a, like I, I, a, a I genuinely part don't know where, where I, I genuinely don't know when I said anything that disagrees with what you just said, honestly. Like, that's no offense to you, but I feel like what we said is about the same it's just that the way that the overall kind of message was portrayed was very different um i don't like the hatred is very clear in both movies that's for sure but mike will go ahead all right here's the hot take i think these movies actually have different messages yeah I agree. okay I agree. here's what i'll say they're similar but they're not the same in a very subtle way and i think that for me it is because or is due to the way that they portray nature in each movie in Nausicaa nature, like the ohms don't feel like they are characters, right? They feel like they don't really have agency per se. Rather, they're almost like a reactive force, right? Like you put the child in the town, they're going to rush the city or, you know what I mean? Right. Whereas in Nausicaa, the animals are given uh, human. Hu- uh, they are humanized, or they're personified. That's a better word for it. Um, they're given voice. They are given uh, uh, agency. Like the gods themselves, they are. There is this. This one animal is different than the other ones because it's a god. 
uh, and there are multiple different kinds of animals, and they uh, disagree with each other, right? And so for me, the message of Nausicaa was much more, we need to stop fighting as humans against humans for the sake of nature so that nature can heal itself. And that is the sort of uh, harmonious uh, situation that we end up with. Whereas Mononoke is much more humans and nature need to work together. And again, as I said, like, because nature is so much more personified in Mononoke, like almost literally personified through San herself, that the sort of cooperative aspect is much more to the forefront than the we humans need to cooperate for the sake of nature. That being said, both of those points, I think, show up in each movie because of the fact that we still have the warring humans in Mononoke and we still have the fact that Nausicaa is able to communicate with nature and uh, to a certain extent understand how the Ohms will react. That like those points are almost like the subtle points that get brought up. But the main forefront points are, in my opinion, actually kind of different in terms of what they're trying to say. So for me, I understand why there is, you know, it's, it's, it's a similar theme. Obviously, it's like a slightly different setting, right? Nausicaa is more kind of post-apocalyptic sci-fi than Princess Mononoke's sort of medieval, uh, medieval, uh, fantasy medieval Japan kind kind of deal. But that's where I'm kind of getting the sort of difference in opinions here. That might be is because the points might be actually different. Yeah, I think I think Michael, you actually put it a lot better than I did, um, and I think that. In, in a way, and I think, Iris, one of the things that you mentioned kind of in passing was that uh, Mononoke felt like a much more kind of in-depth reimagining of Nausicaa. I actually agree with that a lot. I think Mononoke felt like a much kind of better second attempt at uh, a very similar kind of message. Not the same one as Michael had mentioned, but I think Miyazaki decided to shift his focus to something that I think was a little bit more, not necessarily neutral, but I think more human more like, you know, less hero story, more, you know, this is what might actually happen if humans, like, decide to desecrate nature. And I think that that was really much more point, at least to me, having not seen either movie until very recently, I think Mononoke hit me a lot harder. I think it resonated with me a lot better than Nausicaa did. Right, exactly. Because, you know, Nausicaa is sort of the hero story that earlier we were saying that Princess Mononoke isn't. I think, you know, it's it's the same basic ideas, but on, on, on the latter take, you know, and a full like 13 years later, let's also say, the latter take with Princess Mononoke, it was very much more focused on here's the ideas, here's the message, here's the symbolism, here's, you know, let's let's play out the conflict between, you know, these needs. Let's play out the conflict happening in our real world, too. Like, in, in in big, grandiose ideas that you couldn't possibly sort of miss behind the forward face of these are the character arcs. This is the sort of the this and the that and the person doing the thing. It's like, this is what we're trying to say. This is what we want our audiences to take away from this. And that, I think, is where this sort of intense symbolism, where this real focus on the construct of ideas comes from in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And Michael, I want to bring up a point that you made earlier about how, like, in this movie, 
uh, everyone seems to be more humanized, especially the uh, especially the animals. But I also think the humans as well are uh, shown in a more sympathetic light than in Nausicaa of the Valley of Wind, because there they were uh, amassing power for the sake of uh, power itself, like just to create more violence. Whereas here in the Ironworks, in Irontown, uh, we can see like the humans uh, living their lives. They're just like one of us. They are not some sort of uh, force that the, uh, I can't remember the name of the army in uh, Nausicaa was, but uh, yeah, I just, I just really, really like that kind of uh, delving into the sort of uh, inner workings and the inner humanity of the opposing side. So yeah, I definitely, uh, I do think that Mononoke is a slightly more, uh, in-depth look at the same themes that uh, Nausicaa was talking about. But uh, I think that will do it for us, folks. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, And for this week, this week's uh, YouTube video that you can watch is simply called The Song of Rain. It is somewhat Ghibli-esque, sort of Ghibli-inspired, so I thought it was a good fit So go check that out. But uh, once again, that will do it for us, and you will hear from us next week. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.